0: Well, let's turn our attention now to God's word. This is, uh, we're in Matthew, or Matthew, Acts 28, 1 through 6 this morning. Title is uh, of servanthood, serpents, and superstition. And would you stand with me and let's read these six verses together. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, one of the things I've learned as a, or maybe I should have learned, I guess I haven't really learned it, but that is that sometimes when you, when you have a short passage, you think, ah, piece of cake. And then it, and then it proceeds to kick your backside, and that's what that's what this one did to me this week. And uh, full disclosure, I I finished this last night um, because it just was so challenging. In verses one to two, we uh, we find Paul and company experiencing a warm welcome. Now remember that uh, if yeah, and if you haven't been with us, what precedes today's text is. That Paul was on board a cargo ship uh, that set sail out of Crete, um, as we shared last week for a three hour tour <laughs> um, but it turned out to not to be a three hour tour but a fourteen day um, ordeal in the midst of a hurricane on the Mediterranean. and so for fourteen days um, actually fifteen by the time we reached. Today's uh, experiences—they've um, been adrift at sea in the middle of a, a major storm with no control whatsoever over the ship, and uh, and then they they shipwreck on what was to them an unknown island. And so, reading verses one to two again, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain, and was cold. So Malta, if you can throw that map up there, where where this um, this adventure began was from the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean. You see it there, and they had they had landed initially on Crete from uh, at a place called Fair havens and their their destination um, was Phoenix there uh, on to the northwest on the island of Crete but this nor'easter came down off of the island and hit the ship and drove it out to sea and so for fourteen days they were at the mercy of the wind and waves um, until they landed on the island of Malta. Now, when you think about this, look how tiny Malta is. It's just it's just tiny. Seventeen miles long. That that's from here to JBLM. Not very not a very big island, nine miles across. And 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 look how much water there is around it. Now just imagine if, if they, if they hadn't landed there. (laughs) They, they could very well have been out, they could have been in Spain, they could have been out into the Atlantic. Who knows where they might have ended up. Today there's a bay on Malta that's known as St. Paul's Bay. It's traditionally regarded as the bay in which that shipwreck took place and uh, many historians um believe that, that it's probably the act the, the right place, the accurate designation. More importantly in this story, I think, is that the island of Malta is just fifty miles off the coast of Sicily and, and their goal was Rome. Right? So in the providence of God, Paul and Aristarchus and Luke, along with all of the others, were deposited right where God wanted them to be. An amazing reality. And then we read here that the native people showed us unusual kindness. It's of interest, I think, that the word translated native people is barbaroi, and it's the word from which we get the word barbarians. And contrary to popular thought, the designation barbarian does not indicate an uncouth, uncivilized, savage, Uh, barbarian is actually a linguistic term. It's actually an onomatopoeia, a word that means what it sounds like. It it basically could be applied to any people whose language makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to your ears. And so it just sounds like bar, 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 bar. Nonsense, right? In fact, linguistic... uh, Well, in this case, the natives of the island of Malta spoke neither of the languages that maybe the people on board the ship might have hoped that they would speak. They didn't speak Latin. They didn't speak Greek. Uh, linguistic anthropologists believe that the Maltese probably spoke a language that's now dead. It was called Punic. It was believed to have been derived from the language of, of the ancient Phoenicians. It was ancient even at that time. So what stood out most prominently about them, though, to Luke, who was writing this text, was, was not the language barrier or even a cultural barrier, but rather it was the distinctive manner in which they welcomed the survivors of the shipwreck. Luke says they showed us unusual kindness. Unusual kindness, or more literally, they showed us not just the ordinary kindness. In other words, in spite of the obvious language barrier, these islanders went out of their way to be compassionate, to be hospitable, to the nearly 300 bedraggled, soaked, shivering men who were making their way from the crashing surf to the beach in the cold and the rain of an October morning. They built a fire to warm them. They ministered. To their needs, And as, as I thought about this, I thought, what a contrast between the manner in which Paul was treated by his own people, the Jews, in Jerusalem and Caesarea most recently, and that in which he was now treated by these pagan Gentiles, these barbarians. They were of an entirely different culture. They spoke an entirely different language. They were under absolutely no obligation to do anything for these people that had washed up on their beach. And yet they ministered compassionately to them simply on the basis of their common humanity and their extreme need. And in fact, the word Luke used here that's translated kindness is philanthropia. From which, of course, we get our word philanthropy or literally love or friendship toward humanity. And it occurred to me that any time we minister to people in need, that's, that's what we're doing. We're expressing love toward people because of, if nothing else, our common humanity. That's what those of you who serve with city gates, for example, are doing when you're ministering to people who are homeless on the streets of Olympia. You're ministering to them according to your common humanity and their extreme need. And it also occurred to me that that ought to be the experience of every person who comes through our doors here at LifePoint. That when they leave after having been with us, they should be able to report to others that they were shown not just the ordinary kindness. There should be such a warm, welcoming experience that it stands out as unusual, uncommon, memorable. For our guests, if you'll allow me, I would suggest that every Sunday should be a a Maltese morning. And where's the Apostle Paul as all this is going on? He's on the beach demonstrating simple servanthood. Notice the first part of verse 3 with me. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. See, it's just half a sentence. We would read just right by that, wouldn't we? let's think about it. We might, in light of the circumstances, have have fully understood if we had found him wrapped in a blanket, attending to his own needs, sitting as close to the fire as he could in order to dry out his clothing and to warm his own bones. But instead, we find him joining the Maltese in ministering to the rest by collecting firewood. We're not told whether others gathered wood or not, but we do know that Paul did See, no one would have faulted him if he had attended only to his own needs or given his whole focus even to the needs of his two friends, Luke and Aristarchus. And though he was a prisoner, a man of Paul's pedigree could have acted as if he was above menial work like gathering firewood. But he didn't. The Scottish theologian William Barclay commented, it's only the little man who refuses the little task. It's only the little man who refuses the little task. I suppose you could interchange the word woman there too. Now let me ask you, if you're a long-term attender, a regular attender here at LifePoint, how do you understand your role in Contributing to a welcoming environment here at LifePoint for those whom God brings through our doors who may be hurting, who may be storm-tossed in their own lives. How are you personally contributing to creating an environment of warmth and of refuge? in a place where lives may be rescued. I hope you'll think about that. See, because you don't don't have to have a formal title or a designated position in order to make a difference in warming this environment around here, although there are positions that need to be filled. But you do have to make a conscious decision to think beyond your own wants and needs, to think beyond your own schedule, your own agenda for Sunday morning, or even perhaps the early hours of Sunday afternoon so that you're not rushing out of here. But you can linger and, and interact and minister to, to people that God has brought our way. I, I never think it's an accident when someone comes through our doors for the first time. I believe in a sovereign God. He's directing our lives. And he's directing people to us that he wants us to minister to. That they no longer become strangers after that first morning. So I want to encourage you to seriously consider how you might personally meet the needs of those children, those youth, those adults. God is bringing through our doors. If, if you'd like some help in considering your role, we'd love to talk with you about that. And if you're brand new here and and you're kind of liking this place and maybe deciding that this is your church, then you're ready to invest yourself We'd love to help you find your place of service as well. One thing you shouldn't do, and that's build a fire on the hardwood. Don't do that. But it was while Paul was collecting firewood that he had his encounter with a venomous viper. When Paul, verse 4, when Paul, or 3 rather, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, we don't know what kind of serpent buried his fang into Paul's hands, um, It was a bummer of a moment, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, The word Luke uses here is a a generic term. It doesn't indicate a particular species. What, What we do know is that the locals recognized that viper as being deadly. They knew precisely what was going to happen in a matter of seconds or, if he was lucky, minutes. He would swell up and then die or or just not swell up, but suddenly drop dead. The thing I'd really like for us to think about this morning, and the thing I'm driving at, is, is what these natives concluded when they saw what happened to Paul. It tells us that their worldview made them subject to what I would call, for our purposes this morning, a suggestible superstition the suggestible superstition. Verses 4 to 6, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, notice capital J, has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. (laughs) What do I mean by suggestible? A suggestible person is one whose thinking can be easily swayed and changed by mere suggestion. And when they saw that he'd been bitten by the viper, there they first thought that he was surely a murderer, but then moments later concluded that he must be a god. Now their view is reflected in the writing of a first century poet Statilius Flaccus. And I love that name. You know, if I ever need a pseudonym, I'm just going to use Statilius Flaccus. It's it's just got resonance. First century poet, and he penned the account of a man who, who shipwrecked off the coast of northern Africa. Throw that map up there again, would you? So there's northern Africa just south of, just south of Malta. And Libya is right there, although it's not shown on our map. So this is the the account of a man who shipwrecked off the coast of northern Africa as as the result of another raging storm on the Mediterranean and was also bitten by a viper. Here's an excerpt from what he wrote. Oh, he escaped the storm and the raging of the murderous sea. But as he lay stranded in the Libyan sand, not far from the beach and heavy with sleep, At last, naked and destitute, weary as he was from the terrible shipwreck, the viper struck him dead. Why did he struggle against the waves? He did not escape the lot which was destined for him on land. Why did he struggle against the waves? He did not escape the lot which was destined for him on land. Or we might say today, he got what was coming to him. He received his just deserts. But consider this, on what basis could the poet, might the poet, have concluded that this man's lot in life, his destiny was to die, whether in the waves or as a result of a snake bite? Go back with me to verse 4. Behind that word justice, capital J, which is in fact the name of of an ancient pagan goddess. Her name transliterated into English would be spelled D-I-K-E. We'd probably call her Dike. It was pronounced D-K, which actually rhymes with Nike, which is actually pronounced Nike. She was believed to be one of the daughters of Zeus. She was considered the embodiment of justice and revenge. Seeking out and punishing the guilty, you could run from decay, but you could not ultimately hide. The Maltese probably worshipped her Phoenician counterpart, and so Statilius Flaccus' assertion regarding the destiny of his shipwrecked man, bitten and killed by a viper, must have been based on some earlier wrongdoing on his part. Justice had finally caught up with him. This is the same reason, then, that the natives on the Uh, on Malta concluded when they saw that Paul had been bitten by a viper that he must be a murderer or at least something like that. He was paying with his life for having taken someone else's life and the universe was taking out its justice on him, balancing the scales as it were. Now Luke tells us in verses 5 and 6 that Paul just shook off the serpent into the fire and suffered no harm. That's pretty cool. Uh, Every every week, regardless of what text I'm teaching from, I I, I just find on YouTube a number of sermons from great preachers and and listen to what they have to say about the text I'm considering. It was surprising to me how many had titled their sermons, Just Shake It Off, (laughs) you know, just shake it off. When Paul didn't swell up or die, they changed their minds. They concluded, oh, he must not be a murderer after all. He must be a god. Quite a turnaround in their estimations, wouldn't you say? And it brings to mind, doesn't it, the experience of Paul back in chapter 14. Maybe you recall this. It's been quite a while ago. Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. And Paul healed a man there who had been crippled, From birth, he had never walked in his life. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they concluded that Barnabas must be Zeus and Paul was Hermes who had come down from Olympus in the likeness of men. And and so they brought out sacrifices to worship them. But just days later, at the urging of Jews from Antioch and Iconium, those same people stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. See, in Lystra then and on Malta, now in this text, Paul encountered pagans who were given to suggestible superstition. They were easily and quickly swayed by external evidence. They were deeply superstitious. And whether you find the incident to be amusing, you might, or disconcerting, or a little of both, I wonder if it's possible that we who claim to be biblical Christians guided by the Spirit and the Word, and who may think of ourselves as far more advanced and more sophisticated in our worldviews than those primitive residents of Malta, may actually have more in common with them than we would like to acknowledge. Thinking that Paul was a murderer, they saw the bite of the viper as a form of cosmic justice. They concluded he was getting what he deserved, that the universe was exercising karmic justice. Let me ask you, how how often do you and I entertain similar thoughts? Something bad happens to someone, we say, they probably got what they deserved. They probably got what they had coming to them. As someone we don't really like very much, we'd say, "Ah, eh, good, justice, karma. Are those thoughts consistent with a biblical view of the justice of God? And, and what the scriptures teach us about how, how God administers justice. I'd like you to think with me then about what I'll just call the subtle sin of syncretism. The subtle sin of syncretism. What is syncretism? Well, a classic general definition of syncretism is the union of two opposite beliefs, systems or tenets, so that the united form is a new thing neither one nor the other. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But now the synthesis, in its alteration, is neither the thesis nor the antithesis. It's, it's a new thing altogether. Now apply that to biblical Christianity. Syncretism occurs when essential elements of the gospel are either consciously or unconsciously blended with religious elements from unrelated traditions. So, for example, you begin with a biblical Christianity and you add to that a bit of materialism. You add to that a bit of humanism. You add to that a bit of existentialism or pantheism. You add to that a little bit of Mark Twain. And when that occurs, what remains may be a new thing, neither one nor the other. In other words, you crafted for yourself a custom religion that kind of fits you, that serves you, but it's not biblical Christianity anymore. It's something other. It's something different the uniqueness and the purity of the gospel as it has been handed down to us from the apostles in the biblical scriptures may be undermined and perverted by our own uncritical, unconscious syncretism. And we may find one day that though we thought we were living Christian lives, we have just satisfied ourselves with a self-styled religion. And I'm hoping this morning to deliver a warning to all of us, and I include myself in this, because it is subtle, about giving into a kind of unconscious, uncritical syncretism in our personal faith. Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossae, urged them, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And in order to bring this into clearer focus, I want to draw a sharp contrast between a vague notion of cosmic justice, as we see it here in Acts 28, and a biblical understanding of God's justice, His mercy, and his grace. See, the islanders on Malta held beliefs that were for the most part nearly indistinguishable from the notion of karma that's native to Hinduism and Buddhism. The doctrine of karma teaches that you get what you deserve in this life. Karma in Eastern religions is combined, of course, with belief in reincarnation, that that endless cycle of birth and death and, and rebirth, and so that what you experience in this life is the result of how you lived in your previous life or lives, and how you live this life will determine the quality of life you'll have your next time around. And the idea of karma has definitely seeped into our Western Judeo-Christian society like it's something cool. Ask Taylor Swift and Swift, and she'll tell you, karma is my boyfriend. Karma is a god. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma is a relaxing thought. It's all the good things that she thinks she gets for keeping her side in the song, keeping her side of the street clean. Justin Timberlake would respond that for his heartless ex, what goes around, goes around, goes around, comes all the way back around. And if you're of an age that you can't relate much to Taylor or Justin, even Maria, the nun turned nanny in The Sound of Music, would argue that somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good to deserve the love of Captain Von Trapp. It's surprising to me how many Christians I hear making statements that express views that are consistent (coughs) with the concept of karma. When something bad happens to someone who's done something that that offended or harmed ourselves or others, it may be a very natural thing to, to react by muttering something about karma being a beautiful thing. Or or to find some satisfaction in the belief that they got what they had coming to them, it, it may provide some glimmer of hope that at some point these horrible people, these horrible people, might pay for the wrongs that they've done in their lives. And that is until those horrible people are us, right? None of us wants to get what we know we deserve. And I imagine that there are very few of us who have read what the Bible says that would espouse a belief in reincarnation. Some of you may. Some of you may think reincarnation is a possibility. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In other words, you only get one shot at this thing. By contrast, a Hindu or a Buddhist doctrine of reincarnation says that we're doomed to live a possibly endless number of lives, coming back each time as as a human or an animal or a bird until the universe is satisfied that we've somehow gotten it right. And at the end of all of that, if there is an end, we'll be rewarded with the wonderful privilege of experiencing nothingness because, like the band Kansas sang, none of us has eternal value, none of us has unique identity. In the end, all we really are is dust in the wind, just a drop of water in an endless sea. That's classic Hinduism. That's classic Buddhism. Buddhism. By the way, one of the messages I'm going to bring in July or August I haven't determined yet will, will be on the topic of what the Bible says when, uh, what, ha- what the Bible says happens when we die. And so I hope you'll be here for that. In Eastern religions, karma is like a fixed law of nature, uh, a reality that exists without a personal God administering it. In karmic belief systems, there's generally a pantheistic view of God. Pan meaning all theistic, meaning God. All God, the all God, the all soul. All is God, God is all. You're God, I'm God, the chairs you're sitting in are, are God, this building is God, everything that surrounds us is God. And, and it's gotten into our, into our uh, culture in a big way. The Force, for example, in Star Wars, um, the Circle of Life in The Lion King, the Worship of Nature in Avatar were all inspired by pantheistic ideas. If all is God, then what we have come to understand is that God is necessarily impersonal. Karma teaches that the impersonal universe will render to us good for good and bad for, get for bad. In other words, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So sorry about all of that. But because as good as we may be, if we were somehow graded on a curve, we are still imperfect people, therefore karma will always pronounce some level of condemnation. You might ask, but doesn't the Bible at some point teach a view that it's consistent with karma? And the answer is unequivocally, no. In John 9, Jesus is traveling with his disciples and, and they see a man who has been blind since birth, and the disciples asked Jesus this question. Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In asking that question, they were expressing an essentially karmic worldview. And Jesus' answer reveals a a much more complex understanding of suffering, one that is in the hands of a loving, caring, and just God, not an impersonal force. Jesus replied, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There was a divine purpose for his blindness. And Jesus proceeded to demonstrate the powerful work of God by healing the man and restoring his sight. In Luke 13, Jesus addressed the deaths of some Galileans that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, had, had killed. <coughs> and he asked those who were listening, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, did they have this coming to them? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. he continued by asking his listeners about the deaths of 18 people who were killed when a tower fell or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There will, this is not an example of karmic justice, but look, You'll face eternal justice if you don't repent of your sin. So, in each of those examples, Jesus is directly confronting that karmic view of human suffering. When Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, wrote, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Was he expressing a karmic point of view? No. He was describing the inevitable consequences of walking in disobedience to a personal holy God who has clearly revealed his will for our lives and provided the means by which you and I can willingly and intelligently fulfill it by the Spirit of God. We can cultivate a life that feeds our flesh or we can cultivate a life that's responsive to the Holy Spirit. The choice is ours. The God whom we encounter in the Bible is not an impersonal cosmic force. Instead, God is personal. He's the judge who exercises justice in the world that he created and that he sustains. In the words of the hymn writer, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. Leon Morris wrote that God is active in bringing his purposes to pass, whether they are purposes of blessing on his people or of judgment on the sins of men. Psalmist Asaph wrote in Psalm 75, 7, that it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. In Psalm 50, verse 6, it's written that the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And in Psalm 76, 8 to 9, he declared, From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. And long before Asaph, long before the Psalms were written, in Genesis 18, 25, Abraham described God as the judge of all the earth who will do what is just james the brother of jesus summarized in james 4:12 there's only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy god the judge is able not only to destroy but to save he is a god of justice but he's also a god of mercy and grace and so the psalmist wrote in psalm 130 Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I used to try to explain mercy and grace to my kids this way, that mercy is when you get, when you don't get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, which is sometimes a spanking, sometimes being sent to your room, sometimes having privileges taken away. That's, when you don't get that, that's mercy, right? And they say, yeah, okay. And then when they would get what they didn't deserve, for example, when they had done something wrong, and yet I'm going to let them go and do whatever it was they were wanting to do, I'm not going to impose discipline on them. I would say, so what is that? They'd say, that's grace. (laughs) Both mercy and grace represent the unmerited favor of a loving, personal God. What a diametric contrast with the doctrine of karma. An impersonal universe can never administer either mercy or grace. When we read about the psalmist crying out for mercy to a personal God, you can't cry out to the universe. The universe isn't listening. There's no response. The heavens are like an iron roof, an iron ceiling. And your, your cries for mercy bounce off. In fact, the gospel of, of grace is a wholesale rejection of the law of karma. Grace means hope for a people the Bible describes as dead in their trespasses and sins. Unable to, to please God in any way, unable to respond to God, wholly unable to meet God's righteous standard, a people that if left to impersonal cosmic scales, would only measure out condemnation for themselves time and time again. Instead, in Christ, we are offered what we do not deserve in the slightest, forgiveness, reconciliation, hope, the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, and life abundant and eternal. As I wrap this up, turn with me to to Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Romans 3, beginning at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, through faith, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Full stop. Karma would simply say, all have sinned and all fall short of cosmic karmic justice. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of God, the personal God, the just God, the holy God, the merciful God, the loving God, the righteous God. The message of karma is sin, failure, and judgment with no way out. But let's read on. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, that's one of those great big words, right? What does that mean? It means a sacrifice to a God, in this case, the God of Israel, the Creator God. And it's it's a sacrifice that has the effect of turning away the wrath of God. And when Jesus died in our place, he turned away the wrath of God from us. How? By absorbing the wrath of God for us. Jesus is our wrath absorber. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine Forbearance, his patience, his tolerance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, listen, he might be just. That is, is, he, he's administering justice, and, and at the same time he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the message of the gospel is not that God will not judge sin. The message of the gospel is not God saying, oh, that's okay. The message of the gospel is that God must judge sin and has judged sin by laying the punishment, the judgment on his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who has lived a sinless human life and therefore could be for us the spotless sacrifice for all of our sin. He's the only one qualified. Through the cross, God demonstrates at one and the same time both his justice and his grace as the justifier of all who trust in Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. I love that. Well, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, where we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What? What? Justified apart from works of the law? Yes, justified by faith. In the one who bore your sins in his own body, At the cross, who died your death, who bore your penalty, so that you scandalously could go scot free. All of your sin, past, present, and your stupid future, was born at the cross. How can that be? Only God could do that. And he could only do it through his one and only son. He was your substitute. And he took the rap sheet that was against you and he nailed it to the cross. All of your sin, all of your failure, all of your rebellion, all of your apathy, and he nailed it to the cross. How important is it that that we embrace not a hopeless, condemning karma that rejects the justice and grace of God and the God of justice and grace, but the gospel of the grace of the eternal God who has made himself known in the person of his Son and who by the cross has provided the means to escape the condemnation of our sin through personal faith, in Jesus. See, when we sin, we're not just sinning against the universe. We're sinning against the Holy God who created us, who loves us. And how essential it is that we, in turn, choose not to be ministers of condemnation, but ministers of grace to those around us in the name of Jesus. So that when we are offended and, or someone else is offended, someone else is hurt, someone else is wounded, someone else is killed even. And the offender receives justice. We don't simply say karma's is a beautiful thing. But we respond in compassion because there's a way out. There's a way out. There is a means of forgiveness, even for the worst. As the hymn writer said, the vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That moment. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be delivered from slavery to sin, slavery to failure, slavery to the fear of death. Lord, may we, as your people, be ministers of mercy and grace. May we receive it for ourselves, may we internalize it, may we live according to it, and may we minister that to the others around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.